Okay, Genesis chapter 32. See, I didn't have any PowerPoint tonight anyway, so it didn't bother me a bit. We're going to spend our whole time right here in Genesis 32. I think we won't uh, barely deviate a bit. And that's page number, first book of the Bible. Come on, right? Okay, there we go. Genesis 32. We're in the second week of this series I'm calling Life, and we're talking about these various practical ways that God deals with us in life. And last week we talked about uh, divine interruption. Tonight we're going to talk about a divine confrontation. So maybe when God takes it up a, a notch, when He moves from interrupting our life to confronting us in our life. So Genesis 32, let's pray and then we'll look at the Scripture together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, we thank You for the blessing of being able to peer into that which You have breathed out for us. God, we receive it as the perfect gift that it's intended to be. And Lord God, we know that there's work that You desire to do in our lives through this. So Father, we pray You give us ears to hear and hearts that would receive for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Genesis 32 represents one of the most unique, let's use that word. This is the craziest chapter in the Bible. There's so many crazy things going on here. Just from a, I mean, there's a lot of crazy things even in the book of Genesis. But this chapter right here, it just brings together so many things. And uh, it, it's, it's one of the most intriguing stories in Scripture. It's uh, a story. Uh, a passage that I have dearly loved, but it's one of those passages that I never really felt like I fully was peering into the depths of what it had to offer. And I'm certainly not there yet, but I, I definitely went further than I've ever been before, and I liked it. So let's read beginning in... We'll just read... We're going to do the whole chapter kind of, but we're going to just start reading in 22. Let's start reading in 22. That's the focus of this confrontation. Genesis 32, verse 22. And he arose that night. We're talking about Jacob. He arose that night and he took his two wives and his female servants and his 11 sons and he crossed over the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them, sent them over the brook and he sent them, uh, he sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And Jacob answered, Jacob, verse 28. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you would ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Verse 31, Just as he crossed over Penuel and saw, and the sun rose upon him, He limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is the one on his hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. That's just weird. What is going on here? 
so let's kind of <clears throat> use this chapter to set the context here and, and take a little journey with Jacob. Now, it's been 20 years since Jacob fled from his brother Esau, who was threatening to kill him. And when he left, if you recall, he left alone by himself. He went to uh, a, a foreign land to hide out. He was, he was uh, the Bible said, he laid his head down to sleep and he used a rock for a pillow. He was in a low place when he, when he fled. And now he finds himself at this geographical border. He's on his way home. Uh, this Jabbok, it's a tributary of the Jordan River. And so he's, he's at the place where this stream comes in and converges with the Jordan River. So it's like the convergence of, of, a, of, a, of a river and a tributary where they come together. That's what the Jabbok is. And a lot has changed in 20 years. Over the course of these 20 years, uh, uh, he, he now has 11 sons, which is an extraordinary uh, blessing in, in, in biblical times. He's got at least one daughter. We don't know really how many, but we know for sure one. He's got many, many animals. He's got several wives. He's got. Uh, he's he's doing very well. He's been he's been spending most of his time with Laban. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. And they've been working, and uh, and he's been very successful. And he's he's made quite a lot of uh, of money. He's 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 comfortable. But he knows now that it's time for him to face his brother Esau. That all of what has been unresolved for 20 years has finally come to a head. And so, really, when we pick up the, the, the story in verse 22, all that Jacob really sees is Esau. He's consumed with this uh, reconciliation with his brother. Now, Jacob, if you know anything about Jacob, he was born a fighter. He's always been a fighter. He, uh, him and his brother Esau were twins. Uh, he, Esau was the firstborn. The reason Jacob's name, Jacob, is uh, a Hebrew word. It means heel grabber. Because the midwives, when the two boys were born, uh, said that even in birth, Jacob was trying to grab the heel of Esau. In other words, to pull him back so that he could come out first. And so uh, it's not a, this isn't a name uh, that starts out uh, as, a, as really a blessing. It's a, it's a name, it, it means to be a heel grabber, to be a, a grappler, to, to be a, a fighter, to be a struggler. And so Jacob has been the kind of person who lives his life trying to get the things he wants and trying to get them by any means necessary. He's somebody who would do anything that needed to be done. Whatever he could get away with, he would do it. Now Esau, on the other hand, was very different. Esau was a man of the fields. He was an outdoorsman. He was, uh, you know, he liked to stay out and, and hunt and so on and so forth. And he really didn't share his brother's desire to advance himself. He didn't really share his brother's desire to possess things. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't really interested in advancement, so to speak, which seemed to really consume Jacob. And so, you know, if you're taking notes and you just want to jot some different texts down, so Genesis 25 is the whole story of, of how this whole uh, uh, brotherhood exploded when Jacob swindled his brother out of his birthright. Esau comes in from 
hunting all day and he's very hungry and Jacob is cooking some stew and Esau wants some stew and Jacob says, well, I'll give you some stew if you trade me your birthright. And so they go through this whole process and he ends up uh, giving him that, uh, trading that birthright, which basically just meant that Jacob would get the blessing that would go to the firstborn son, even though he was the secondborn son, and uh, which was really just a formality because really it wasn't up to them two who would get the blessing of the firstborn son. But uh, so what happened was Isaac, the father, was very elderly. He was blind. I'm sure you know the story. Jacob dressed up like his brother. He put his brother's clothes on so that he smelled like his brother. Um, I'm dying to know what he had on his arms so that his father thought he was hairy. I have no idea. Uh, You know, if he cut the arms off of a Tickle Me Elmo and put it on. I don't know what he did. But anyway, his father wasn't sure who was that. And he felt his arms and they were very hairy. And he smelled like his brother Esau. And so he tricked his father into thinking that he was Esau. And so his father uh, blessed him. And when Esau found out that Jacob had received his father's blessing, he vowed to kill Jacob. And so Jacob fled to Haran. He took off and 20 years has passed and they've been separated. But while Jacob was in Haran, he I mean, it's just so the, 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 just the detail in all of this, uh, the, the way these Hebrew narratives are written, that, that no word is ever just there. Everything means something. And uh, you can just spend so much time looking at all the, uh, the seeming ironies in this story. I mean, here's the, the swindler who swindles his brother out of the birthright, he goes to Haran, and what does he do? He meets Laban. Well, the reason he meets Laban is because Jacob goes to this well, and this beautiful young lady named Rachel comes to the well, and she wants something to drink. The problem is there's a stone on top of the well that would take several grown men to move. Jacob picks it up by himself and moves it, And, you know, he is in love with Rachel. He's willing to do anything to marry Rachel. And so he goes to her father, who is Laban, and he says, you know, I want to marry Rachel. And and, and Laban says, no problem. You just work for me for seven years and we'll, uh, we'll be able to work that out. And so he worked hard labor, no doubt, for seven years. The seven years passes and Laban dresses up his... Uh, other daughter, Leah, you see the similarities here, and then swindles Jacob. And so on his wedding night, he thinks that he's married to Rachel. He wakes up the next morning and realizes it's Leah. And so he goes back to Laban and says, okay, I want to marry Rachel and Laban says, well, no problem, but I'm going to need seven more years of hard labor. And so he works another seven years and he finally gets to marry uh, this incredibly beautiful woman, Rachel. And so all of this is what's been going on. He uh, he's 
basically over the course of these 14 years after he marries Rachel, he continues to work with Laban. That's how he amassed all of this, uh, these, these animals and so on and so forth. And so, you know, now he, it's time to go back home. It's time to go and reconcile. It's time to, to, to go back and square things up with his brother. And so he travels from Haran down through Syria into what's modern-day Jordan. So basically, he's on the other side of the, the Jordan River in what is called Jordan. And this Jabbok, it represents uh, a, a border to Israel. And so he's come up to this border. And so if he crosses over, uh, then he's, he's home. He's back in Israel. And so he's all the way as close as he can get, but he hasn't really entered into his homeland yet where he's uh, trying to go. Now, when we get to, to the specifics of Genesis 32, I just want to point a few things out. Um, he's already been preparing for this. He, Jacob is, a, is, a, is very shrewd. He doesn't just do anything. For, I mean, he doesn't just wing it. He always has a plan. And so if you look at the very first few verses, like beginning in verse 3 of chapter 32, you see what he does. He sends messengers uh, before him to his brother in the land. So he wants to see what's going on. And he commands them and he says, uh, Speak thus to my Lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and I've stayed there until now. And I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent them, and I've sent, I've been sent to tell my Lord that uh, I may find favor in your sight. So he's trying to feel out his brother and see like what he's up against. And then verse six says, the messengers returned saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, but with 400 men. Now, I'm just saying, when your brother is coming to reunite with you and he's bringing 400 men, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a real pleasant reunion. I mean, that's, that's bad news. The question, the first question that, that jumps out at me is, well, then at this point, why not just run? Just go back to Iran. Just leave. I mean, why, why do you feel compelled? Why do you have to meet with your brother? He's got 400 men. I'm thinking that's a really good reason to say, you know what, let's try it again in 20 more years. I'm going back. He can't. And why can't he? If you, if you look back at chapter 31 in the very beginning, I'll read it to you. Chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord says to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. The reason he's consumed with going back to his homeland and reconciling with his family is because the word of the Lord has come to him and commanded him to do so. And so he's obeying God. Now understand, he's a shady guy and he's done a lot of shady things, but God has spoken to him and he's decided he's going to do that which God has asked him to do. And so he's returning and he has uh, made up his mind that he's going to do what God's asked him to do. And Jacob, as always, is always scheming. He's always thinking up different ways. So if you look at verse 7 of chapter 32, you'll see that he's afraid, he's distressed. So what does he do? He, he divides his family into two groups. 
He takes his family and all of his herds and he divides them into two groups. And he says, that way, verse 8, if Esau comes to the company, to one company and attacks it, then the other one which he left will escape. Now that's got to make you feel confident if you're, you know, his kids or one of his wives or one of his uh, servants that, you know, probably there's going to be some bloodshed and someone's going to die. So we're going to divide up and hopefully it's not team A, but team B or depending on which team you're on. And so, but he prays. He was a shrewd guy, but he, he prays. And so in verse nine, you see, he begins praying to God and he, he starts saying, Oh God, my father, uh, Abraham and the God of my father, Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family. So he starts recounting what God has already told him to do. And he's, he's asking God to help him. And then you see the real the real real insight into his heart about verse 11 where he says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother, of, uh, or the mother with, with the children. For you said you will surely, uh, that I will surely treat you well and, and make your descendants as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. You see, so he wants God. He, he genuinely wants God. He wants to obey God. He's going through this because he wants to be obedient. But he's afraid and he's uncertain and he's not, you know, I mean, he's not overly confident here. I mean, he, he's, he's putting all of his human schemes into play as much as he can, but he's going forward. And so he's still constantly trying to perfect a plan. In verse 13, uh, the Bible says he, he settles down and he, he, he lodges there that same night and he took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. And so what he's going to do is he's going to give all this to his brother. Verse 14, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, uh, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals, 550 animals. I mean, this is an unbelievable amount of hard work represented here and wealth and just uh, of the ultimate importance financially. And so 550 animals he's going to send to his brother. This shows you how much his heart is filled with trepidation about this is not going to go well. He is afraid. And what he does is he sends them a hundred at a time. He sends a hundred and then he waits and then he says he doesn't send 500 animals all at one time to his brother. He sends them in waves. And so I guess, I'm not sure, I guess he's thinking that his brother is going to, you know, as they keep coming, his brother will, it will soften his brother up maybe or something like that. And so that's what he does. And so when we get to verse 22, we find Jacob in the midst of all this turmoil. He can't sleep. He wakes up. And he's going to take his family and he's going to cross over. He's just going to go. Verse 22. So he arose that night and he took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 sons and he crossed over the fort of the, of the Jabbok. And so there he goes. You know, this. we're about 30 miles north of the Dead Sea. And this point that Jacob is at, it, it, it 
is a, a very critical geographic border. It's not just a random place. It's a place that represents, it delineates the difference from being in Israel and not being in Israel. It's a very clear, defined, it's not like we're just walking across land and we just cross over, you know, one border to the next. It's not like when you're driving on I-10 and you drive into Alabama, if there wasn't a sign, you really wouldn't know exactly where it was that you crossed the state line. And even if there is a sign, we're really not sure where exactly the point is. But here, it's very clear where you cross over. And so he takes them... And he sends him over the brook. So he sends him out in front of him. And he sent over everything that he had. Verse 24. And then Jacob was left alone. And there he is at night alone by himself. His family's gone ahead across. And the Bible says, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. And he said, well, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, well, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, well, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, what just happened? It's like this story is all kind of adding up. I mean, there's a lot of crazy things that lead up to it. But then just suddenly the Bible says there's a man and they're wrestling. The first thing is, who does Jacob think this man is? I mean, obviously, he must think that it's one of Esau's men that snuck over and attacked him. And so they start wrestling in the dark. We know that Jacob is a man. We know that he is strong. We know that he is powerful. I mean, we know that, that, that wrestling is nothing new to him. Uh, he's, he's a fighter. He's always been a fighter. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he, that he doesn't back down or that he, he, he doesn't give in. But it is just, uh, it's just strange that this, Man just appears out of nowhere. And at what point does Jacob realize that this isn't just a man? You see, there's a there's a turning point in in the story. It it's when the the Bible says that the man he touched the socket of his hip. And so when he touched it, and, and that word is literally just a touch. He didn't hit it. He didn't punch it. He just touched it. And Jacob knew right then that this was no ordinary man. Something extraordinary just happened. And so now the the tide turns. So in other words, this is what you have to understand. There's Jacob alone by himself in the dark. A man pounces on him and they begin to fight. Now, as this thing starts, Jacob is thinking, I'm going to take you out. And Jacob is going full force trying to win this battle. And it is a battle royale. Jacob is fighting back with everything that he has. Once the man touches his hip and Jacob realizes that this is not, there's something supernatural happening here. Then Jacob 
no, goes, he, he, he relinquishes the offensive and he goes completely on the defensive. He goes from trying to attack back to hanging on and refusing to let go. And that's very important to see. For example, the prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 12 brings this episode up. I'll read it to you. Hosea chapter 12 verse 3 says that he took his brother by the heel in the womb, talking about Jacob, and in his strength he struggled with God. We know that this is the same angel of the Lord that appears other places in Scripture. The same angel of the Lord, for example, in the book of Numbers that uh, Balaam encounters. Whenever you see that phrase, the, the, the angel of the Lord, when there's an angel in human form, it's the Lord. There's God right there in the midst of Jacob and he's battling with God. Clearly, the, the, he identifies himself in verse 28 when he says that you have struggled with God. So he's telling him that. But before Jacob really realizes that, it's when he touches the hip that he, he, lets, he, he turns, lets go of the offensive, and he goes on the defensive, and he starts just hanging on. Now, sometimes, I had to say all that just to say this. Sometimes God comes into our lives and He touches us. And it's not the way that we think that God would normally touch us. See, we think a lot of times that God, we need God to come and touch us in our weakness. And we do. And that is true. And we pray that and we ask God when we're weak that He would come and that He would touch us. But this story is not about God touching us in our weakness. This story is about God touching us in our strength. This story is about God confronting us where we're strong, where we're confident, where we feel uh, secure and, and stable and successful. That's where God touches Jacob. Now, I sat in my office before this text, and I thought about this. And I thought about how I've seen this happen in my own life. And I thought about how I've seen this happen in your lives. And I thought about how I've seen God touch people in their strength. And at the time, it almost seemed like utter devastation. For example, I can remember years ago, I can remember Wade coming back from visitation and telling me, uh, he'd say, uh, Tony, I, I, I went back out and uh, visited that butch guy. And uh, I was like, Butch Triplett? Yeah, I went back out to Butch's house. How'd that go? It didn't go so good. And then a couple weeks would pass by, and uh, I guess, you know, Renee was, was feeding us information, like, go see him at this time. Me and the kids will be gone. It'll be safe. I'll hide the guns. There won't be any ammo. I don't know. So way to go back out. And then he'd come back and he'd say, how to go? Well, he let me in, but, I, you know, anyway, so I get the play-by-play. Play. So anyway, point being, I, 
that if you've heard Butch's testimony, you know, I mean, here's this big, strong man who works with his hands and works outside and does construction. And Wade goes over there and visits him one night and he's laid out like a baby and can't do anything and his back is completely gone. And he's just helpless, hopeless, useless, laying on his back. And lo and behold, we got to share, right? Because his strength was taken from him. And I'll never forget, you know, after Butch came to the Lord and hearing him tell his testimony. And when he tells the story about how he just crawled in his house because he couldn't walk. He crawled in his house down and his daughter had a little precious moments Bible. Are you seeing this? The big strong man is crawling and then he lays down on the floor with the little pink Bible and starts reading it. And God began to pour into his heart and draw him to himself. You see, that's what's going on here. That's when God touches us in our strength and he and it it brings us to our knees. And we think that it's this catastrophic event, but God is up to something in the event. You see, notice in verse 26. The angel of the Lord said, let me go for day breaks. Now, there's a lot of things that you just have to, you know, I mean, there's just things that we don't know absolutely, certainly like that statement right there. The assumption by most scholars is, is that the sun is going to come up and you can't look into my face. You can't look into the face of God. We know that. You can't see me. And if the sun comes up and you're still hanging on to me, you're going to be dead. Because if you look into my face, you're going to die. But Jacob says, I don't care. I'm not letting go until you bless me. I'm not letting go. Now, Just a few verses earlier, he's throwing punches and fighting back. And now he's clinging on for dear life. And the angel of the Lord saying, come on, it's you better let go. Because if the sun comes up, it's going to be problematic and it's not going to be for me. And he says, nope, I'm not letting go until you bless me. You see, the, the principle is always that the stronger always blesses the weaker. The, the, the dominant always blesses the, the less dominant. The, the preeminent always blesses the one who is on the way up. The father blesses the son. The, the, the general blesses the, the sergeant or whatever the case may be. Jacob is acknowledging the fact that I'm the weaker of the two of us. He says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. He's recognized that this is not some man. This isn't one of Esau's guys. This is, this is supernatural. And he's 
battling with God. And he says, I'm not letting go. I'm the weaker one. I know that. I admit that. But I'm not letting go until you bless me. That's an acknowledgement of the, of the greatness and the power of the one he's wrestling with. Jacob has spent his whole life searching for validation. Jacob is the, the man who grew up always wanting to prove himself, always wanting to be accepted and validated. He's the guy who, whose father never says, I love you, who's, who, who nothing you do is ever good enough. And so he spends his life trying to, to get the accolades of the people around him. And he's always trying to use his own human ingenuity to get the approval of other people. That's the story of his life. You can see that his heart, if you just read uh, the, all the narratives about his life, you can see that he's a very unsettled man. I mean, he's very, very determined and he's very, very successful. But what motivates him is to be validated in the eyes of others. He's trying to validate himself. He doesn't, he feels like if I don't, if I don't validate myself, no one will. Now, some of us can relate to that. And Jacob, up until this point in his life, every indication is he's using God as a means to an end. He, he, his life intersects with God. But you know what? He, he's, He's never, he doesn't take God seriously. He's always just sort of using God to get what he wants in life. But at this moment, when he says, I will not let go unless you bless me, Jacob turns the corner from being a person who knows about God to a person who is about to enter into knowing God. I mean, there, there's a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And again, you, you can see how I ended up in this text. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to see the correlation to what we talked about this morning from Genesis, I mean from Galatians chapter 3. That there is a, this is an illustration of knowing God as opposed to just possessing information. And he says, I will not let go unless you bless me. No matter how dangerous it is, no matter if I die, no matter what you... Now understand, this is a man who has risked his life and his family and everything else to get here because he's being obedient to what God's called him to do. And now... The same God that said, get your family and all your stuff and go home and reconcile with your brother, turns around and says, let go of me. And he says, uh-uh. Nope, I'm not letting go. You see? He's, he's turned the corner. I mean, I'm giving him credit for obeying God to go home. I'm giving him that. But it, you can see, he's not going out of this out of this relationship with God. This is a, is a turning point in his life. All these other things don't matter to him in this moment. He finally realizes that what he does, he doesn't need the approval of other people. He doesn't need, he doesn't need other people to validate him and make him be okay. He realizes that he's holding on to the one and only person that, whose blessing he needs. And that is a huge moment. And it, it may be 
in the dark in this crazy situation, or it may be in the fetal position in the hallway of your house with a little precious moments Bible. But there comes a moment in time where you realize that the only thing that matters is I need the blessing of this one. I need to know this one. I need this relationship. All other relationships pale in comparison. And so at that moment, this whole text turns. And now you start seeing the grace of God unleashed. I mean, literally, just it's like this this switch goes off and the, the grace of God begins to pour out on Jacob's life right here when he says, I will not let go. Verse 27. So the angel of the Lord, he says, what is your name? What kind of a question is that? Of course he knows his name. He knows everything. Why is he asking him his name? God is reminding him of his past right here. He's drawing him all the way back to where this first began. Isn't he? You see? Yeah. What happened? He's taking him all the way back to the moment that Jacob, dressed up like his brother, walked into his father and his father said, What is your name? And he said, Esau. And now the Lord said, What is your name? What is your name? And what does he say this time? Jacob. You see? He's a changed man. He's turned the corner. This moment, he answers, he says, he he realizes that blessing doesn't come by deceit. And he's truthful. And he tells him his name. And and now the the heel grabber, the, the wrestler, the cheater, the swindler, Jacob, the one who's always been scheming, the one who's always been working the angles, the one who's always been consumed with getting that which he wanted. He's willing to do anything to get what he wants. Even if it's steal his birthright from his brother, whatever he's got to do to marry the woman he wants. He he doesn't care who he tramples on. He doesn't care what it takes. He's going to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. And in this moment, he stops and he says, my name's Jacob. And he's owning the truth because, listen, the name Jacob doesn't mean hero. You got to understand, he knows what his name means. He's owning the fact that I'm the heel grabber. I'm the swindler. I'm the cheater. I'm the schemer. So when the angel says, what's your name? He basically is acknowledging the fact that I'm that one. I'm the one. I'm the heel grabber. That's who I am. He's owning who I am. He's stepping up to the plate and saying, I'm Jacob and I'm a swindler. And I've gone about everything the wrong way up until this point. You see this, this, this moment, the, the, how pivotal this is in his life. And so again... The grace of God takes another step forward. Verse 28. So the angel says, well, your name's no longer going to be called Jacob. 
Why? Because that's not a name you want to be called in this culture. He says, but it's going to be Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, let's just talk about this for a second. The the name Israel, it, it literally means prince with God. It means prevailer. It means one who has prevailed with God. And so Jacob, the heel grabber, the swindler, the deceiver, who has done everything in his life, fought against God with all the determination that anyone in life has ever had, is now clinging to God in desperation and will not let go unless he's blessed. And the angel of the Lord turns and says, now that's not going to be your name anymore. Now your name is going to be, it's going to be the one who prevails. It's not going to be swindler. It's going to be prevailer because you've prevailed. You've struggled with God and you've struggled with men, but you have prevailed. You see, all of his determination of his past has now become the desperation of his present. It's never, ever, ever our strength where we prevail with God. I want you to listen closely to what I just said. It's never in your strength where you prevail with God. It's in your desperation that you prevail with God. It's in the places in your life. If you looked back over the span of your life and you looked at where you most prevailed with God, where God most worked deeply in your life, it's in the most desperate moments of your life that God did the deepest, greatest, longest lasting, transformative work. Not in the strength. And this is what Jacob is is learning right before our very eyes. God used the place where Jacob felt most strong, most secure, most able. Listen, I wasn't there, but I'm pretty certain by everything we know about Jacob that there was no mortal man that he feared. He wasn't afraid of Esau as much as he was afraid of Esau and his 400 men. But Jacob was a man. And now he's hanging on like a, like a baby, refusing to let go unless he's blessed. So verse 29, then Jacob asked, tell me your name, I pray. And he's, the angel answers and says, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. Now, do you just see... From verse 27, 28, and 29, what has just occurred? How the grace of God has just systematically played out? How all the wrongs of Jacob's life just got resolved in one, just one instant conversation. Just in one moment as his heart turned and, and he became from, from someone who was filled with determination to someone who was filled with desperation. And then he responded correctly to the question and then God then pressed in further, and now God's given him a new name, and now he's, he's asking, now who are you? And then the Bible says at the end of verse 29, and the angel blessed him there. You see, when God confronts us, 
it seems like in that moment that in the confrontation that God wants to harm us. It feels like everything's wrong. It feels like that that harm is being perpetrated against us. It's those moments where we feel like God has abandoned us or forsaken us. But what God is doing is He's confronting us to work deeply in our life. He's putting us in a situation to birth the desperation we need to go where He's called us, to go with Him. And don't think that a loving, perfect, heavenly Father doesn't know where your areas of strength are. Don't think that He he doesn't know where you feel strongest. He doesn't know what relationships you feel most confident in, what areas of your life you feel like you are uh, completely sufficient in. He doesn't always intersect with us in our weakness. Sometimes He touches us in our strength. And He brings us to a place where we hear in a way we could never hear before. Jacob has spent years and years. He has wounded countless people. His whole life was one scheme after another, one attempt to validate himself after another, one one more cycle to try to make people think he was great and that he was successful and that he knew what he was doing. And it's all washed away in an instant. And the Lord just renews his heart and gives him a new name and blesses him. And look at what happens. Look at verse 30. Look at the newness that's born out of this. So Jacob called the name of this place Peniel, for I have seen the face of God. I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So in other words, I don't know if the sun just began to crack up and and just there was just enough light that maybe in the midst of that moment as he was hanging on, he could just see the lines of the face of the angel of the Lord. All I know is that he could hear the voice and he could look into the darkness at where that voice was coming and he knew that he was looking into the face of God. He knew he couldn't see it all. He knew if the sun came all the way up, he'd have been obliterated, but he was looking into the face of God. And now there's a new place in his life. That there's, there's a place now that's new because this is a place where he was with God face to face and he survived, he prevailed. You see, that, that moment in the hallway with the precious moments Bible, it doesn't seem like this extraordinary victory in that very second. I'm not sure if if anybody would have walked by and would have looked down the hall and wondered what their father or their husband was doing. But I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have looked like this ultimate victory that it was. But right there, broken down with a little girl's Bible with pictures in it and stories. A new place was born right there. A man 
saw God face to face and prevailed. He, he lived to... He lived. He was given life. Look at verse 31. The Bible says, Now just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him and he limped on his hip. Not only was there a new place, but now there's a new limp. Now there's a there's a physical deficiency that marks a spiritual sufficiency. That for, for every moment forward, for every day as he arose up out of his cot in his tent and stretched his leg out and it hurt and it took a while for that to warm up and then even when it was good, he still would have this noticeable limp that he was... There was a, a lingering effect of, of what had happened. Because there's a marker in his life to forever remind him of this moment where God taught him a lesson. And yes, it was a painful lesson. That's the point I'm making. This was not a, a party. This was, it was painful and it hurt. But it serves as a, as a, a, a permanent, poignant reminder of what God had done in his life. That his physical limp was a sign of his spiritual health. Now remember I said that there's, there, that's the thing about these narratives, these Old Testament narratives that in the Hebrew language, everything is, is there for a reason. So there's this new place and there's this new limp, but it's a new, it's a new day, it's a new dawn, there's a new life, that it's, it's new now. Now I want you to see something. Go back to Genesis 28. Just flip back to Genesis 28, verse 11. Remember I told you about when, when, he, when he first fled from his brother Esau after he stole the birthright and he headed across and was going up to Haran and the Bible said that he was so pathetic that he laid down and he had a rock for a pillow. Look at Genesis 28. Look at verse 11. So the Bible says he came to a certain place and he stayed there all night because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. The, the Bible wants you to see how pathetic he is. He's like the, the prodigal son sitting there in the pig slop that he's, he's using a stone for a pillow. But here's what I want you to underline. I want you to see... That he came to a certain place and he stayed there all night because the sun had set. That darkness had dawned. And so he went to bed. Now go back to Genesis 32. And look at verse 31. So as he's limping, the Bible says he crossed over Penuel. And the sun rose on him. It's a new day. The day he stole his brother's birthright and he fled, the sun set on his life that day. But the day he limped away from his encounter with God, the sun rose. You see? 
It's a new time. It's a new, it's a new day in the life of Jacob. And then verse 32, Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. And so you just stand back from this whole encounter. And you just think, God, what are you telling us here? What are you, even if we see all of these amazing things about Jacob's life, what are you telling me? What, what, are you, what is God telling you tonight from this text? Because I am fascinated by the fact that we serve a God who wrestles with us. And He doesn't just wrestle with us, but this text says He lets us prevail. This is a God whose power has no boundaries, whose might has never been challenged and never will be challenged. That the very idea that this God, the God of the universe, would wrestle with a man and not kill him, not crush him. And that when his point was ready to be made, he would just touch his hip. And with the touch of his hand, He would limp forevermore as a reminder of this confrontation with God. Does it make God seem weak to you tonight? Does that bother you? Does it bother you that God's ways are not our ways? That He values what He is doing in your life spiritually far more than we do, that He is far less concerned about our physical comfort than we are? Does that bother you? Does it bother you that the God of the universe would wrestle with a man? To show he would allow himself to be seen as weak. That's what that is. God allowed Jacob and now us to see him in his weakness. The same God that would one day send his son to this earth to not wrestle with a man but to wrestle the full brunt of all the sin of every man, woman, and child who ever has been or will be for all time. And that just as Jacob's great triumph was in the weakness of God, our hope, our standing, our everything is tied up in the 
seeming weakness of God, hanging on a cross, allowing the very people that He created in His own image to mock Him and curse Him and spit upon Him. And He hangs silent on that cross, seemingly weak. But do not mistake what's seemingly for what is actually happening. It is the goodness, the unspeakable grace of God that He would become weak and hang on a cross and be crushed for our sin to bring the very perpetrators of evil not to justice, but to relationship with Himself. Jacob, the heel grabber, the swindler, the schemer. And God shows up, makes himself weak and wrestles with him. Is that not the most amazing picture of what God has accomplished in order tonight for you and me in this moment? If I don't know another thing, if I don't know what tomorrow holds, if I don't know what is going on around me, if I don't know what great unbelievable struggles and tragedies and trials lie ahead for me, if I don't know any of those things, but if I know tonight that I am the Son of God, that I'm His beloved Son, and you, that you are His child, His son, His daughter, what else do you need to know? What else do you need to know? What else matters in light of that? That's how amazing our God is. Let's stand by our heads. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you. Do you wrestle with us, God? How many days in our life do we we know we know we're just a heel grabber. We're just a we're just a swindler. We're we spend our lives leveraging all of everything we can for our glory and our comfort and our schemes and our plans and, and our desires. And God, if the truth be known, we're inundated. With a desire to be seen by others as valuable, acceptable, successful, good, that we stop at nothing to prevent ourselves from being seen as weak or broken. But you show up right in our strength. And you touch us. And when you touch us, we know it's you. We know that touch is different from any other touch. And you use what seems like it's there to mean such harm in our life to bring forth 
life. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you because we're just a room full of people that in our own way, every one of us in here that's your son or your daughter, every one of us, our story is some way, somehow we ended up on the floor with a little pink Bible. Because you know that it's our dependence. It's our dependence. It's our desperation that brings forth what's most valuable in this life. And we thank you for that, Lord. So, God, you're an amazing God. You you do everything in a unique, special, wonderful way. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for the gift of your word and allowing us to just be loved by it. Thank you for tonight, Lord. For every brother, every sister in this room, I thank you. Lord God, I pray that you'll take you'll take this lesson of confrontation and you'll encourage what we think are broken places in our lives, but they're really places that you use to draw us deeper to you and we'll celebrate you. So, Lord, may we all be in our own way limping tonight as we leave as a reminder of a God who makes himself weak and touches us because he loves us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.